welcome to the voice of the child. Nearly 22,000 children were cautioned or sentenced from 2018 to 2019, and the average custodial sentence these children receive has risen sharply from 11 to 18 months. At the same time, incidents of physical restraint and self-harm in youth detention centres have also shot up, with more than 6,000 restraint cases and 1,800 cases of self-harm recorded last year alone. Award-winning charity Safe Ground works with children in prison, offering them support and access to education, as well as creating alternative solutions to conventional forms of punishment like detention and school exclusions. Charlotte Weinberg has been Safe Ground's Executive Director since 2010. She has 30 years' experience within youth and community work, and she is also the Chair of the Centre for Crime and Justice Studies. Callie Davidson is Safe Ground's Programme Coordinator. She holds a BA in Drama and has worked with young people doing drama and improvisation. Charlotte, the current stats that the government have released say that there are around 859 children in prison, but there's been a staggering 60,200 arrests um, of children in the last year. What do those figures say to you? They say, I'm not very good at maths, but they say there's something like 61,500 arrests that are leading to children that are not being sentenced or processed through the criminal justice system. So... What are they getting arrested for and why? Well, while I'm pleased that those children aren't being processed, why are they being arrested then? Because if they're being arrested for things that don't lead to a sentence, or maybe they're being sentenced to uh, something in the community. I don't know what there is for children in the community, if I'm honest. I don't know what that would look like. And the figure of 859 um, young people in youth custody... That figure is for the year ending March 2019. Does that concern you at all? It concerns me massively. I think it is currently slightly less than that. At Safe Ground, we don't believe any children should be in prison for any reason. There must be alternative ways of looking after children who commit serious and violent and sexualised crime. Prison is not an appropriate response. So to think we've got 859 children, young people in prison currently under COVID, yeah, it concerns me hugely. It concerns the organisation and I think it should concern anyone who hears about that statistic and more people should be hearing about it and having conversations about it. What are those children there for? What's happening to them? How are they getting looked after? Where do they go at the end of their sentence? What's happened to them before their sentence? Who are they? Who are their families? What services are they receiving? Callie, we know that some of these children are are as young as 10 and and the criminal um, age of responsibility enables children as young as 10 to be tried for various offences. What do you think about the, the current criminal age of responsibility in the UK? Well, I mean, as Charlie said, we don't believe that, and at the same time, we don't believe that any children should be in prison. So obviously, I I think to be to be um, trying a ten year old or someone as young as ten, with as as the age of criminal responsibility seems mad to me. Like 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 I say, they're children. They they're not necessarily matured enough to be able to understand the repercussions of what's going on for them and what's happening as a result of possibly multiple factors that are weighing in on their lives, if that makes sense. The latest data that we've also received from the government tells us that black children are disproportionately represented inside the youth justice system. And we know that from March 2006 to March 2019, the percentage of young people in custody who were black 
has more than doubled from 12.5% to 27.8%. Charlotte, why do you think that is? Well, I think it's because structural racism underpins our entire, not only criminal justice system, but education, housing and welfare provision. So it's inevitable that that level of disproportionality is going to manifest in the final destination of the criminal justice system. And can I just add one thing to Callie's answer about the age of responsibility? Yes. Uh, I agree with everything Callie said. And in my albeit limited experience of working in the criminal justice system since about 2009 and having worked with children and families involved in the criminal justice system since about the mid-90s, I have yet to meet staff in a secure children's, uh, secure training centre or secure children's centre who have a 10-year-old in their establishment. That's not to say it doesn't happen, mm-hmm. but I think it's rare. So the fact that the that 10 remains the age of responsibility seems not only outrageously inappropriate, but totally anomalous. I'm sure there will be lots of people who can now give us lots of cases of 10-year-olds that have actually been held in secure settings. I personally haven't come across it. So I wonder what the what the reason for holding on to that is. Because other countries and other states have managed to raise their age of responsibility. Ours used to be higher and it was lowered after a very specific occurrence. Why was it lowered? It was lowered because of the murder of Jamie Bolger and the children who committed that offence were 10 at their time. Going back for a moment to black children within the youth justice system, what the data effectively tells us is that black children are four times more likely than white children to be arrested. How do we address systemic racism within the youth justice system? Well, I think that's a great question, Natasha, and if anyone could answer that, they'd be doing a lot of podcasts. I think in order to address systemic racism in the criminal justice system, we need to be able to address systemic racism The criminal justice system is racist because it is born out of a wider system, set of institutions that are fundamentally racist because they are born out of a set of thinking and frameworks that categorise and hold a hierarchy of people's value and worth that is tiered. And black people and black women sit at the bottom of those tiers. It is therefore inevitable that the criminal justice system will be harsher, more punitive against black women and then black men and brown people as we go up the hierarchy, as it is established. That is how structural racism is bound to operate and every institution and system that springs out of it will inherit those fundamentally racist understandings. We also saw from the data that more than 6,000 cases of physical restraint in youth detention centres were recorded last year. Is this a technique that is sometimes necessary and when carried out properly can be done humanely or does it cause long-term damage to children and is it a procedure you feel should be banned? When I hear any of these questions, immediately I think of how the people who work in these institutions might answer them. And I think about those people, many of whom I have met and, you know, I've met some lovely people that work in secure training centres. I work with a lot of 
people that I like and admire who are trained in control and restraint. Do I think there are ways to control and restrain children safely? I have been told many times by people who work in those settings that yes, and that it is often necessary and useful, and that yes, it is possible to control and restrain children safely. As someone who has chosen actively to not work in those settings, partly because I couldn't bear to do that, I struggle with the notion do I understand that children who are suffering extreme and complex trauma may sometimes behave in extremely difficult, often violent, unpredictable ways that can be dangerous? Totally. I totally believe and understand that. I think using control and restraint is an institutionalised response that is sanctioned and protected by organisations and institutions. I think when families experience violence from their children and use violence in response that is questionable families aren't allowed to use violence against their children no matter how they're justifying but the state and our institutions and our organizations are able to use control and restraint to not say violence against children who demonstrate difficult behavior i find it confusing and if i find it confusing i think it must be confusing for children Do you ever get any feedback from children who have had experience of physical restraints and whether or not it's actually made the complex trauma they may already be suffering worse? I mean, in my experience, children don't talk in those terms. What children and young people will say about restraint is, it didn't matter, he, they didn't feel anything, it wasn't that bad, you know, it's been done so many times, it doesn't even matter anymore, they know what's coming, they wind them up so that they make them do it. You know, children who experience complex trauma and are suffering the experience of abuse, assault, attack and are hypervigilant, being controlled and restrained by adults isn't something that gets talked about in terms of trauma. It's something that gets talked about in terms of bravado and children find ways to dismiss and minimise a lot of their own experiences, particularly those that are unbearable or difficult to cope with or manage or those that they think are going to be belittled or dismissed. So it is rare to have an opportunity to sit and talk with children and young people who are experiencing restraint in a therapeutic manner or in a way in which those children are enabled or feel safe enough or willing enough in a relationship to talk about, actually, it was petrifying. I didn't know if I was going to survive. I've heard about children and young people that have died by being held in these holes. I'm really scared. I don't like being threatened by someone who's physically larger than me or by having two staff come in my room and hold me down. I find it really difficult to talk about. That is a rare conversation in my limited experience. In spite of these enormous challenges, some of the boys you've been working with inside the youth justice system have been able to disrupt the prison sector with a really innovative plan to change the way children's detention centres look and work. Tell us more about these amazing boys and their initiative. So these amazing boys were, to be fair, eight children who were, four of them still are, held in a secure children's centre, were invited to take part in a research project with us. They were broken into groups of four, so we worked with four in the morning and four in the afternoon. They didn't really know what was going on before they met us. Um, Staff just asked them if they'd like to come and meet us and talk to us. So we designed a 
creative storytelling based format to take the boys through a process of critical thinking really around the design of a new secure unit for children in the West Midlands and we were commissioned to do this work by a senior policy advisor for the area. So we took the boys through the details of the work that policymakers were thinking of building a new secure unit and they wanted to hear from children who might represent children that would be held in a secure unit as to what that should look like and what it meant for children who are looked after by the state, children in care, to be held in a secure setting as opposed to children that are processed by the criminal justice system. And we wanted the boys to think with us about whether either of those children should be held in a secure unit and what it meant if they should be held together. So children who are in care because of welfare concerns and children who are in custody because they've been sentenced by the courts. So the boys were asked to engage in quite a sophisticated piece of thinking about, well, what's the difference between these children? And is it okay for children in care to be put effectively in a place that is predominantly used to keep children in custody? So the boys created a character. They took him through a fictional process that they designed and they were asked at various points in his story what should happen to him. And some really interesting things came out of that research. The boys believed, and they were talking about a child, so they were talking about a boy under, around their own age, 15, 16, a boy under 18. Boys that were sentenced by the court were bad and deserved punishment, where what they described as the welfare kid was a victim and he should be looked after because he'd probably not had a great childhood. So they, in their heads, were already splitting the idea of a victim and a perpetrator, and that a child could be one or the other, and that a child that is a victim is worthy of and deserves care and compassion and concern and shouldn't be in a secure unit, whereas a child who has committed a crime has violated the rules, been bad, made decisions and deserves punishment. These children were 15, 16, I think one of them was 14. So um, we found that really powerful. We wrote a very brief report of the process for the policymaker who had commissioned the work and on reading it he was really struck by this idea that children were making themselves responsible for a situation and a set of circumstances that that meant they were in prison aged 15 and as a result of reading the boys thinking decided that actually the idea for a secure, a new secure centre in the West Midlands probably wasn't what he wanted to do anymore. And he's rethinking the whole design of that service. So with his permission, we sent the report and told the boys that they had had that kind of impact at that level. Four of the boys are no longer in the establishment. Great. 
four of the boys are still there and we know that they have received a copy of the report and we're hoping to be able to get some feedback from them and talk to them about A, the report and now B, this podcast. We wanted to be able to involve some of them in the podcast, but we just didn't have the time or the resources. Um, But we will be keeping them up to date with the fact that they've had such a massive impact. It's brilliant that they've been able to disrupt the system in that way, but it's also heartbreaking that, as you say, they've felt they've had to carry a burden which isn't of their own making. And we also know that a, a, a large number of children from the care system find themselves inside the youth justice system anyhow. So there is a connection there. Charlotte, did the boys ever offer you any feedback about their own experiences um, inside prison? They did. Um, we weren't there to talk about that, but it was inevitable because during the course of the process and the characters that they created, the boys made allusion to their own experience and in some of the conversations were quite free in sharing with us the fact that they had been in multiple placements, they had been in care previous to coming into prison and they had been in different custodial settings. I think... I think the statistic for children in custodial settings is that around 50% of them have been in care. Mm. 50% of children in custodial settings have been in the care of the state. Children are removed from their domestic environment for welfare reasons. And yet 50% of the children that have been removed for welfare reasons are in a custodial setting that is hard to understand you know when they say could you explain it to an alien that landed from another planet i'd find it really difficult to make that make sense children can't be looked after at home so we place them in an environment that is designed for punishment that's not to suggest that some children don't commit crimes they do But it is also to question what is happening for a child that commits a crime. If the boys don't mind you speaking on their behalf and they don't mind you sharing this information, what did they say to you about prison and how it affected them? Some of the boys in that particular process talked about their their holiday camp experience and the fact that they could differentiate between which were the best places to be and which were the worst places to be. So... On a superficial level, some of the boys will talk freely about the fact that, you know, their current placement is really positive and really good and that it's great that they're there. Often that's in comparison to other places they have been. It is unusual, like I said earlier, for boys and children to sit and talk about the gravity and depravity of the situation that they're in because children tend to try and find, particularly with people they don't know very well, ways of describing circumstances and situations that are bearable. That makes sense. It's a protective mechanism. Mm. Spending time and building relationships with children that are in circumstances and situations that are unbearable means that sometimes you do get an insight into the huge impact that just regardless of the conditions of a particular environment, the moving around, the knowing that you're not stable, not secure, not attached to a family or an environment or a group of people. It's totally unnatural, rightly or wrongly, but in 
the culture of the United Kingdom, it is not natural that you see different people every day coming in and out of what is supposed to be your home. Mm. You know, these are false environments. It's unnatural that you grow up in a house with 20, 30, 10 other children and adults in every room all the time. These things, no matter how benign they might be and at their best how pleasant they might be, are not natural, they are unusual, and they are either at the behest of the court or of the states. So something, children know they are in a system, they are a case, they have a file, they have a worker, and they have a process to go through. That differentiates them from their peers who don't have that. So I think the boys often talk quite positively about their experience. Having said that, in another institution where we did a piece of work, the boys were very clear that there was absolutely nothing positive about where they were at all, and they were desperate to get out. What was going on for them was not positive in any way, shape or form. Their experience was totally coloured, flavoured, informed by a lack of trust and a lack of faith in the system that held them. And from spending a while in that environment, I could totally understand what that was based on. Callie, I've seen a project on your website called Man Up. What did that project involve? So Man Up is a programme that we have run in the past and continue to run. It's an ongoing programme. It is a three-day group work programme that we um, work with uh, young men and adult men. Um, to consider sort of pressures and expectations that come along with um, the identity of being a man. Um, Obviously, some of these can kind of exacerbate behaviours which can be harmful and negative. Um, So the participants are supported to look at the stereotypes that are associated with being a man. Um, It's arts-based and therapeutic um, it's not it's not therapy, but it's the therapeutic based work um, where we work we work through with the participants um, to kind of understand the concepts of masculinity and identity in its most succinct. And <laughs> <laughs> um, when you were doing that project or when you were doing that project with with young men and boys specifically, what do they say to you most about their sense of identity in today's world? Boys don't often say my sense of identity in today's world is X. The work that we do that I think Kelly really brilliantly described creates an environment and opportunity for boys and men, because we run it with adults as well, to think and talk about the cultural and social norms they are expected to fulfil. So they might talk about, for them, the importance of being able to provide for their families or having a car. I'm trying to think about, you know, the boys, particularly the younger boys and young adults that we've worked with. Money, material, possessions and kind of provision are really important. And boys will talk about that quite a lot. And they will also talk about the importance of their having a very clearly defined heterosexual relationship with a particular type of woman who will fulfil their own needs and wants and desires. Am I making sense? Yes. So boys will express their their understandings and their masculinity through the work in terms of 
what they think is important. And at the beginning of the programme, which is only three days, often that will be expressed in terms of what's important externally. So how they're going to be judged by other people, the money, the cars, the job, the woman, the kids, the trainers, the whatever it might be. And through the course of the work, often what starts to happen is that boys will start to think and talk about their integrity, their maturity, their emotional availability, their understanding of their role in relationships. It's not always a fairy tale and it's far from a happy ending. Very often boys will start the programme saying, you know, if my woman goes out, my girl goes out without me knowing. We had one, I think it was a group of boys were talking about if their girlfriend smoked, she would have to stop smoking. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, on the one hand, that's not an unreasonable request. Who wants to be <laughs> going out with a smoker? Fair enough. But but when it was flipped and the boys were asked, well, fine, are you going to give up smoking as well? That was totally out of the question. <laughs> and a lot of those attitudes didn't necessarily change during the course of the three days. But we were able to have conversations very explicitly with the boys about, so what is that? What's going on there? That you're allowed to change her, but you don't have to change. And what do you think that is about? And the programme deals with issues of power and control and authority and anger and relationships with yourself and other people. So boys get into quite a kind of high level conversation with themselves and each other about where they are, where they position themselves in terms of those power dynamics. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the most beautiful and moving and very difficult, I'm getting upset when I think about it, manifestations of that was when we ran the programme in a um, in a custodial setting with a group of young men, all under, I think the oldest was 17, many of whom were facing sentences that were longer than their life so far. Um, And we had spent a couple of days probably doing some of this really difficult and challenging work. And the boys found it really difficult to focus. They're hypervigilant, they're looking out the windows constantly, they're aware of who's around, they're waiting for bells to go, they're finding it difficult to be sitting down in a space they're up and on their feet and kind of literally bouncing around but they were engaging and they were doing the work and i think it was probably during the second day a lot of really difficult stuff had been talked about and had come up in the group and at one point one of the boys was sat on a chair and about five of them were standing around him all plaiting his hair So whilst talking about hugely violent and difficult experiences, they were showing each other care and attention and affection and looking after each other and physical intimacy in one of the only ways that they were able to do it, which was by grooming each other. And it was really, really, really poignant. And like I say, it still moves me now. Because those boys would have never asked for a cuddle or been able to just hug each other, but they stood around each other and spent time on that boy's head. And maybe that's just my reading of it and I'm being sentimental and I'm an old woman who doesn't know what she's talking about, but it was a very powerful image that has stayed with me because to me it had enormous meaning. It sounds incredibly powerful and also very beautiful. In terms of the 
the prison system as it is at the moment, especially with the current restrictions that have been imposed because of coronavirus, the landscape within the youth justice system has changed extraordinarily. And a lot of people inside that sector are concerned about the, the current restrictions in place. Can you talk to us a little bit about what those restrictions are and how they've affected children in prison? So for everyone in a custodial setting since March, COVID has required an institutional response that has been, on the one hand, extreme, in that complete lockdown has been undertaken. Whilst that's understandable, clearly it has enormous implications. So 23 and a half hours in a cell is not unusual across the custodial estate at the moment. So for many establishments, many adult establishments, that is changing. That hasn't been necessarily the same in every establishment. And I'm sure there will be people who listen to this who can argue and point out uh, different instances. And I totally accept that I don't hold myself up as an expert. But across the estate, full lockdown has been the institutional response to preventing what could have been a huge outbreak of COVID in obviously very... Um, conditions in which proximity is difficult to manage. For children, that has been the same. And there's a statutory instrument that has been passed which has amended the rules and regulations for secure training centres that equally now means children can be held in their cells for up to 22 and a half hours a day. Now, why that's been passed as we're coming to the end of lockdown, I have to admit, I'm not clear. Because when adult prisons are starting to lift and ease their lockdown regulations, it seems that the secure training centres are tightening and harshening theirs. I'm not clear as to why that is. But there has been quite an outcry about the fact that children are facing reduced access to education, reduced access to visits, reduced time outside their cell, even to be with each other in the dining hall or communal areas. Um, so the impact for children, as you can imagine, is effectively being held in solitary confinement. Children don't, don't share cells. So on your own, someone at the beginning of um, quarantine said, if people really believe that they understand what it's like being in prison because the country's gone into lockdown, they should actually, if they want to get a sense of what it is like, lock themselves in their bathroom for 23 hours. That's the only way you can get anywhere close. And of course, it won't be anywhere close because you're in your house and you can unlock it. But I think his point was, that's that's a closer analogy than just having your front door locked. So for children to be effectively in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day, for months at a time, with no physical visits with their families, with often patchy letter delivery, with limited access to phone calls and no virtual visits being set up, I think for anyone to really seriously close their eyes and try and imagine what that is like would be difficult. We also know that under the amendments, um, those restrictions have been extended to March 2022, which is very different to other settings where um, regulations will be eased by this coming September. Callie, why do you think that that extension is so wide within the youth justice system? I personally can't think of a reason why it needs to be other than the fact 
that it gives the it would give the government time to um, establish a slow easing. Charlie, you might do you want to jump in? Yeah, I think Kelly's point is reasonable. Maybe there are plans afoot to figure out how to safely bring children back out of lockdown. There's another question, however, which has to do with, I would suggest, and it's contentious, you know, and like I say, I have no personalised issue with individual staff who work in establishments. There are a lot of well-meaning, caring individuals who work in establishments. However, in many establishments, there are keep apart rules and regimes that are designed to run on who can and can't mingle with whom. We're talking about children and young people being kept apart from each other because of the dangers that the institution understands through their mixing. So because of affiliations, because of previous uh, antagonisms, because of unspent conflicts, children and young people have to be what is commonly referred to as kept apart. So the regime will run on the basis that ex-children are going to cross the courtyard at this time, so Y children must not be anywhere near or available during that period. Now, to design an entire regime on who can and can't be in which geographical location when is extremely complicated. It means that everyone's movement is even more restricted than it is by virtue of the fact that you're in custody. So we already know there are... I think you said 870-odd children, young people in prison, Natasha. Of those 870 young people, many are increasingly, although youth justice figures have gone down, the numbers of young black men in prison have gone up. They're serving longer sentences. The youth estate has long been known amongst custodial settings as one of the more difficult areas to work in. Lots of staff prefer working with adults because it's calmer. Young people tend to cause more alarms, have more fights. So there's a certain attitude and understanding around what it means to work with young people, which I'm not agreeing with. I'm saying it exists. So there's already a kind of environment in which young people are housed on the basis that they're a bit troublesome, they tend to kick off, they tend to be naughty and difficult. Staff know that it's going to be difficult. And now they're increasingly serving long sentences. They happen to be black. Maybe they've been sentenced for violent sentences or they're part of organised crime and they've been involved in drugs. You know, all the kind of curiosities and concerns that staff might have get to be played out. Often young people and children that are in custodial settings may have come from care, we know 50% of them do, may or may not have already had experience of significant and severe disappointment from adults and certainly from services and organisations like schools where they may have been excluded. It is a hotbed for conflict and resentment, distrust and uh, dislike of authority and inappropriate use of authority. So to keep children locked up for 22 and a half hours a day, if you wanted to be kind of looking at this from the worst case scenario, you could say also offers institutions an opportunity to kind of figure out how they're going to cope with the potential for extremely challenging environments now that young people have been in solitary confinement for four months. How are they going to cope with kids coming out of that? Not feeling safe, knowing 
that everyone's scared and the virus hasn't gone away, knowing that they haven't seen their, their loved ones and might not, and not knowing when they are, knowing that they haven't had education. And if they were on the path to get back into education, that's been scuppered now. When are they going to get to do their exams? They're already behind. They're going to be even more behind. The environment that that must be festering and fostering, again, is difficult to think about. So I wonder for whose benefit those restrictions have been made because it's difficult to understand how they're for the benefit of the young people. One of the things this conversation is really highlighting and bringing home is that children in prison are connected to all sorts of other issues and there are elements that are so interconnected with one another they really can't be ignored. From children in care finding themselves inside the youth justice system to uh, school exclusions and how that affects children who then may find themselves inside the youth justice system. And I know that school exclusions is a particular area that you focus on. We've seen from uh, the latest government report that 7,900 occasions of children being permanently excluded happened in 2017 to 2018. And that's the equivalent of about 42 children a day being expelled. We also know that there's been a rise in knife crime amongst the youth demographic. How do all those things interconnect, Callie? And and what are your feelings about those issues? Well, so I think in our programmes, we have a we have a policy that we don't exclude anyone. So um, if if a participant wants to leave off their own back, and we've had a discussion about that, and and that there are reasons for that, that's one. Th- we don't ask anyone to leave and that's because we want to foster an environment where um, we can show the participants in the programs that, that we we do have the faith in their abilities that that they they do hold um, and often uh, participants in our programs will have been excluded or have experience of being excluded from other programs or other educational settings and I think to exclude children from um, programs or from schools um, kind of gives out the message that if they exhibit behavior that is difficult to manage that we won't bother at all and that I don't think that's the way forward and I think I think I think children can only aspire to the levels that the adults in their lives set for them and if we're kind of setting a level of well if you kind of bypass this level of behavior then we won't bother anymore why why would anyone want to want to persevere so I can kind of understand how these children feel if, if they're to be excluded um, um, based based on their behavior and then I, I mean Charlie will be able to say more on this but I think in terms of knife crime and exclusion um, when when children are excluded that means that they they have they don't they you know school is how many hours a day I don't know nine hours a day or something mm-hmm. they've got a lot more time to fill and it's obviously far less structured and constructive time than it would be if they were in an educational setting. So I think p- children tend to be excluded um, because of their behaviour. Um, and really the children who are excluded because of their behaviour are probably the children who need support the most. And um, like you say, everything's, uh, you know, ch- children in the criminal justice system, everything's really um, interwoven. Um, so yeah, that they might be in care, or they might be they might come from a sort of difficult um, family background or setting, or dealing with with a really tricky context, and they're the children that we our schools abandon when 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 they're excluded, and and really they're the ones who need the support the most. Charlie, you might want to add to that. Thanks, Kelly. Yeah, I mean all of the above. I think the Timpson review. I think it came out last year. Mm. 
found that African heritage, Caribbean heritage, gypsy, Irish gypsy or Roma traveller children are three to four times more likely to be excluded from schools. Three to four times more likely to be excluded. And bear in mind that these are children who already experience racism on a day-to-day basis, a racist environment, potential bullying, not only from their peers, but also from teachers, and who experience stereotyping daily, if not instantaneously, and who have the experience of a curriculum that totally either excludes them or, again, stereotypes their entire history. Those children are three to four times more likely to then be excluded from a system that already excludes them. Think about what we're doing and what we're saying. By we, I mean the state. So exclusion is a a brilliant way of individualising what is in fact a structural problem. It locates the problem in a child and it says, Timmy, you are naughty. You are so naughty that we, the rest of us who are not naughty, cannot cope with you. You are so naughty that you are disrupting an environment in which we wish to learn. This environment is not pleasurable with you in it. So we will take you out of it and then we can get back to having a nice time. You are the problem. Off you go and you sort yourself out. Sit on the naughty step, go to the headmaster's office, go into CBT or Tate Ritalin or whatever it is that we tell you to do. You go with your problem and you sort it out. You find an individual way to deal with your individual problem and you leave the rest of us alone because it's too much for us. We're all fine. So, Timmy, I've known five-year-old boys we put on Ritalin. You go and sort yourself out and we'll crack on without you. Thanks very much. Ciao. Goodbye. To individualise what are actually structural issues, whether they're violence or abuse or ignorance, the fact that an entire educational curriculum or entire nation state doesn't cover colonial history or slavery in any meaningful way, that's exclusion. Those children are already excluded. To then throw them out of the door, literally, and tell them to go and find a way to make themselves better, what is that? If a family did that to a child, the child would be removed from them. But we have institutions doing that to children for whom they have a duty of care. They're saying these children are too difficult for them to cope with. And then they're being put on Ritalin. So actually the problem is what ADHD or some... What's happening? Why are adults unable to cope with children and why are children being punished for that? Well, Safe Ground is trying to address a lot of those issues with the work that it does, and it is amazing work. What future child-focused projects do you have in the works? Thanks, Natasha. So, I mean, we are really lucky at Safe Ground. The staff team are hugely creative, and I think the creative work that we do feeds our energy. So we often make a bit of a rug for our own back, because every day about <laughs> three people will come and go, I've had an idea. <laughs> so uh, it's tricky to keep track and then put into practice everything that we want to. However, at the moment, we have um, an idea that I don't want to say too much about because it's very early days, but an idea for some development of work to deal with exactly the issues we've been talking around, around how the curriculum actually is exclusive and how 
formal education fails to teach children either facts about history in a kind of 360 degree manner and give children a full picture of the world, the globe and what happened where, when, why, who was involved, um, but also critical thinking skills. Doesn't The facts are less important. You can read facts that you totally disagree with as long as you understand that you disagree with them and as long as you can make a cogent argument as to why. Why you agree, why you disagree. What do you think about that? So I think for us, the development of the work is going to be around understanding children and young people and continuing to help adults understand what is the system, what, what's happening, who's doing what to whom, why, how, to what effect, and where am I in that, and what does it mean? Callie, do you think that's a reasonable summary? Yeah, I do, yeah. Do you want to add anything? Is there anything else I've missed out that you can think of? I mean, in terms of young people, I'd say that that's the kind of key thing that we've been thinking about. Um, yeah. On top of that, we're also um, obviously looking at how we can adapt to um, working during the, the lockdown in prisons during COVID-19. Um, that, that, that's kind of more with the adult mm. estate, although I imagine not exclusively. Yeah. Yeah. And so also that we're working with, with we're kind of um, one step removed or, or two step removed working with, with children, of, with parents in prison. Natasha, can I go backwards for one minute? Of course you can. I'm really sorry to do this, but I think I got really uh, exercised. And um, I think it's also important in terms of school exclusion, just to think about the fact that one in 10 young black men has been stopped and searched with no result in London. So we're throwing children out of school and expelling and excluding young people in a context where they're being stopped and searched at massive disproportionate rates to their white peers, mm-hmm. very often for no good reason other than the police being suspicious. And I think what Kelly was saying about school exclusions, you know, the propensity for children that are out of school to be available and valent to manipulation, abuse, grooming by older peers and adults Mm -hmm. that's what a duty of care is for that's what safeguarding is about that's why institutions have a duty of care to children to protect them and keep them safe from grooming manipulation abuse by older peers and adults so the fact that we on the one hand exclude children from our institutions and then punish them for having been exploited Mm-hmm. Again, thinking about the alien that I'm trying to explain the system to, I'm getting a little bit lost, to be honest. It's very, very difficult to make it make sense. 